Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, down there in my home area, Atlanta, Georgia. One of my favorite NBA writers, one of my favorite authors, because Sean Powell, uh, I read your book, Red Sold Out, uh, this past month, got it in, and uh, very much loved it, and uh, excited to kind of maybe ask you a couple questions about that, uh, revisiting it, because it's been, uh, what, a decade now since you wrote that book? Um, uh, been about 15 years now. Yeah. No, but no that's not that long. Uh, let's see. I'm losing track. Right around there, though, about a dozen. About a dozen. Yeah. Does it feel like it? Uh, it took about, took me like, it felt like it took a dozen years to write it, even though it was more like six months. Uh-huh. And the reason why is because uh, writing is very um, tedious, time-consuming. And, uh, you know, when you write for your regular nine-to-five and then mm. you take on a writing project, I mean... There's a reason why I haven't written another one since. Not that I have anything against writing books. It's just that I can't write a book and do this. Mm -hmm. uh, I think once I maybe stop doing this, then I'll go back to writing books. What do you think the next, next book would be on if you had to do another one? What, what do you I don't know. The next I approached, uh, I approached uh, Alan Iverson and his people about doing his autobiography. I think mm -hmm. that that would be a bestseller. Uh, but I, I don't know where he stands with that right now. Um, uh, there could be maybe a, another autobiography that I could probably see being written besides his, although his would be fantastic if he was honest with it in the, in the book. And that's one thing about autobiographies. Sometimes the subject is not fully honest. He might be 75% honest, mm -hmm. but he's worried about what, you know, what his kids are going to read about him. Mm -hmm. He's worried about maybe he wants to get another job in the business, all those sort of things. And so they're kind of careful what they wrote. Sylvester Stallone said something that I thought was very, very true. He said he'll never write his autobiography because hmm. if he did, he would hurt too many people. And hmm. I believe that's absolutely true. If you're going to be honest about it, the, the only books, only autobiographies that I've read that were about 85 to 90 percent honest was Andre Agassi's. Hmm. Jerry West and Mike Tyson's and they hmm. kind of came completely clean. What do you think that was? What do you think the three had in common that made them more likely? To... Well, I think Jerry West was very comfortable with who he was. His kids were grown. He probably hmm. had discussions with them and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Mike Tyson. I mean, his life was out there for so long, an open book. I'm sure he was like, well, there's not, there's very little that I could write that people already don't know. However, it was very compelling and he really spoke from the heart. Agassi just had, he just wanted to unload on, mm. you know, what he went through, you know, as a kid, you know, tennis prodigy as a young, his father drove him, all those sorts of things. And his was very good. But the rest of them are just glossed over, vanilla, just throw it together so maybe you can make a couple bucks. And that's not how you should do it. Why Iverson for you? Was that... Why Iverson? Why why would Iverson? Well, well, I just one? think that he's lived. First of all, I think that he has a sort of an iconic. He's had 
he has a following the same mm. way Kobe had a following the same way Jordan had a following, you know, but the one thing I told Iverson, I said, you do have a following, but your crowd, your audience is going to grow up and move on. Hmm. And you have to write that book while you still have that audience because eventually they'll just move on and you mm -hmm. won't have the same pizzazz. So, uh, but you know, uh, we'll see where that is. Interesting. You have a you have a lot about Iverson in the book. Um, if you had to add another chapter right now in 2023, what do you think you would cover? What do you think you would add to the book? Um, that's a great question because uh, the black athlete and society around him both have evolved since I wrote the book. Not drastically, but I mean, you saw the social unrest movement in 2020. Uh, you know, guys like LeBron James come out, you know, things like that. Um, so I'm sure it would probably be updated in that in that manner. But I do think the big picture, um, the fact that uh, the power has not been really fully exercised, the fact that uh, misrepresented in the highest level of sports, as in commissioner, as in the NFL, you see the coach coach situation you know, CEOs, general managers, certainly owners. Uh, I mean, those things are still there. Uh, and those things are still um, in, around us. And the other thing is that the whole stereotype uh, that we, we've we seen from Black athletes. It used to be back in the 60s and 70s, you know, to beat your chest after a three-yard gain in the first quarter and after you make a basket and all those things. Those, those things were frowned upon. And it's hot. Like the worst thing that could be called is someone calling you a hot dog. It was the worst thing that someone could call you. Hmm. But nowadays it's accepted. And not only is that, it's accepted among black athletes. It's like you're supposed to start dancing in the end zone and things like that. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm too old school in, that, in a sense. I like the Barry Sanders approach, you know, act like you've been there before, all those sort of things. But I get it. Uh, the generation is a new generation. It's a new s set of demands. Uh, it's the it's the basically the abolishment of sportsmanship. Sportsmanship mm -hmm. is gone. And sportsmanship began to die the day Muhammad Ali stood over Sonny Liston in the ring mm -hmm. and said, "You're a sucker." Now it took a, a few years after that, but that basically lit the fuse. And nowadays, it's not only just beating your opponent; it's showing him up showing him up, you know, rubbing it in, all those sorts of things that used to be frowned upon. It's now accepted and even demanded by the public. And what I see is that black athletes all too often fall into that trap and they feed the stereotype. And, mm. and that's really what it's really all about. So that's why the book was how blacks are winning and losing in sports. Mm. Winning financially, of course, I mean, the money, ridiculous, all those, it's like changing generational wealth, all those sorts of things. But then there are other things that um, black athletes can control. And there are certain things that are uh, beyond their control. Yeah. And I mean, there are things like uh, Richard Johnson wrote a really good piece uh, highlighting um, just uh, the most um, influential uh, black coaches, admins, things like that at SI this week. And I didn't realize that Mike Loxley had a coalition that he formed in 2020 um, during COVID uh, for minority coaches and minority um, admins and just increasing that. And there's like 1500 members or something like that. But that was something you had highlighted in the book. And that's just a, a big part of it. And I, 
I just, uh, I think stuff like that just continue to get bigger and stronger. Um, you're going to see, uh, more and more progress, but like you said, it's still just not, not where we need to be, but it's progress, uh, at this point, but, um, very much love the book. And I would highly encourage folks, uh, to go to get it. It's on Amazon. Uh, go, go get it. It's a great read. Um, well, Sean, Damien Lowe dropped 71 points this week. And I wanted to pick your brain about Lillard because he is such an interesting, I think, figure in sports in general, because we talk about like where um, certain things have gone with athletes. But one of the things that has changed in the modern uh, athlete is just kind of like bouncing around. You don't really worry about playing from team to team, your legacy in terms of bouncing around from team to team. And a lot of guys expect to just bounce around uh, at a certain point in their career. And Damian Lillard still is just, he kind of feels like the the last man standing to this old guard. Um, and it's paying off for him. Where the 71 points, I think, meant more for Lillard and for that community in Portland because he's just been there. And he's, the Portland Trailblazers are not going to make the playoffs this year. Uh, they're having a rough rebuilding year. We'll see what they do this offseason. But he stuck around and 71 points was just, a lot of fun you see how the city still just loves and enjoys watching Damian Lillard go to work and just be the best player uh really he's on his way to being the best Portland Trailblazer ever um and being the most revered Trailblazer ever because of just his impact and staying and doing what he's done on and off the court that I mean where does like w- w- does it change anything about you in terms of his um is all where he ranks all time and just who he is as a player and a figure in Portland. Um, what what did you make of the the legendary night and just Damian Lillard as a whole right now? Well, I mean, it was a spectacular night for two reasons. Number one, uh, he didn't play the the, the game before because mm-hmm. they had some travel issues and everything, and he received some blowback about that. Mainly social media stuff, whatever. I mean, players read too much about what they read on social media, and it kind of psychs them up. I don't understand. If, and, and this is a whole different rant, but why do you care what some guy in Montana thinks about I, I never got that, the whole mm. social media mod guys are always checking their mentions, whatever. Anyway, but he didn't play the, the game before. And, uh, and the one thing about the 71 points, two things. Number one, he was very efficient doing so. It wasn't like he was jacking up 71 shots to get the 71 mm. points. Number one. Number two, he, he scored all that in regulation. Uh, Donovan Mitchell also broke the 70 point mark, but he needed overtime to do that. Not mm-hmm. diminishing what Donovan did, but I'm just trying to put it in context with Dame. The larger context with Dame is not having a championship. Well, I mean, again, certain things are just beyond your control. I mean, you mm-hmm. can play as well as you want to play, but you have to have the right coaching, the right teammates, and you got to have some luck too. Sometimes the ball's got to bounce your way. And Damian Lillard has been in the conference final once. And when he was in the conference final, they played the Golden State Warriors. That was the year Kevin Durant was injured. And Damian Lillard did not play well in that series with the Warriors. They were swept. Um, you could you could argue that Myers Leonard played better than Damian Lillard. He just didn't shoot the ball very well. And again, I'm not going to hold that against him. I mean, it's a, such a small sample size. I mean, if mm. he performed lousy in like five Western Conference Finals, okay, well, that's a trend. Mm. So that's certainly forgivable. The other thing is um, what he means to the Portland community. I mean, you know, yes, he is endeared there. I mean, Damon Lillard is really, and we talked a little bit about the whole 
look at me type, you know, persona you see among athletes beating your chest. Daniel doesn't do the other stuff. And you look at the, if you go back in, in, in that 71 point game, you know, the celebratory gestures and all that stuff, you know, the sticking his chin out, on, he, he just played the game. And that's what I love about him. He, mm-hmm. play, he just plays the game. All the other nonsense he's, you know, he doesn't put up with. He's a man of high character, a man who, uh, there's a reason why he is adored in Portland. Uh, because he carries himself the right way. He does a lot of things the right way. Uh, he is really what you would want in an athlete. Now, a couple other things about him. Number one, I think the world of him is a player. I just think he's a, just a tremendous, tremendous scorer, uh, works hard at his craft, works hard at his body, respects the game. I also think it's a, it's going to be hard for a six foot one, six foot two guard who only done, does one thing extraordinarily well, and that's score. Mm. It's hard for a player like that to lead your team to a championship. You want to say there are some exceptions like Isaiah Thomas. Okay, but Isaiah Thomas had a, a very good defensive team around him. Lambeer, Rodman, Sally, you know, Rick Mahorn, Joe Dumars. So he had some good pieces. You mm. want to say Steph Curry? I don't know about that. Steph Curry had KD for two of those titles. Uh, he caught a little bit of a break last year when half the Western Conference contenders were had, you know, missing pieces, Denver, Clippers. Uh, and um, and then Steph just played just amazing basketball. So, but other than that, it's very hard for, you know, Dane isn't, he's not grabbing a bunch of rebounds. He's not, he's a good passion, not a, he's not Stockton. And he is not going to impact the basketball game at the other end defensively. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish him. He, he's a 75, He's named to the 75 greatest players ever. So that's mm-hmm. ultimate respect. The other thing is he has a max contract. The guy is making 50 and $60 million a year. I have not that much sympathy for human beings who's pulling down that kind of dough. It, you know, he's doing well for himself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he really wants sympathy. I don't know. Uh, but again, he is my idea of a basketball player in terms of how he carries himself and in terms of how he respects the game. He has his limitations, as 95% of all basketball players do. They all have limitations. And he's done as well as he could in Portland. Is there a part of you, though, that wants to see him go somewhere else just to see it at the no. end, just to see him contend? Are you okay with it? No, I mean, I, again, you know, I mean, is championships everything? I, I guess yeah. so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Charles Barkley never won one. Patrick Ewing never won one. I mean, I can go on and on. So mm. many great players. Elgin Baylor arguably didn't win one. I know he was with the Lakers last year in 1972 when they did win a championship, but he retired before the season started. So, I mean, again, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not a full-fledged member of the championship or bust crowd. I don't mm. necessarily think that reflects tremendously poorly on you. I just think that you just have to give yourself as many cracks at it as you can. Only one team's going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes you're trapped. You're at the mercy of a great player's dynasty. Like, look at, look at Carl Malone, John Stockton, denied during Michael Jordan's era. Patrick Ewing, denied during Michael J- Jordan's era. Charles Barkley, denied during Michael Jordan's era. How many, how many teams and players have been denied during the Steph Curry Warriors era? Sometimes it's just like that. Uh, so um, what I, I mean, is there the human side of me that would like to see him win one in Portland? Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. 
But at the same time, is he more any more deserving of a championship than, I don't know, Jason Tatum, Chris Paul? I mean, I can go on and on about players who haven't won a championship. Is he more deserving of them? I don't know. I mean, you, you do the best you can and let the chips fall as they may. Do you think because we've seen two 71-point games this year, we're going to start to be desensitized to 70-point games just with the way yeah. basketball is played sooner rather than later? Well, I think it was several years ago when the NBA put in some rule changes to stimulate scoring mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, you have the Miami Heat plan, the New York Knicks, and the score was 75-70. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, fans wanted to see a more open floor, open court thing. And I think it was a case of be, be careful what you wish for uh, because nowadays everybody just jacks up three-point shots. The floor is spread. Everybody goes one-on-one. There's no There's no – creative play calling by coaches basically just give the ball to your best player and let them go one on and we've seen the scores just you know go crazy i mean what was it the clippers played the sacramento kings and double overtime game that mm-hmm. both scored 170 point whatever it was and um yeah i think maybe some things need to happen to get that pendulum swung in the other direction not obviously you don't want to go back to 75 point games but I think there should be a happy medium where or teams and players are allowed to play defense. Um, I, I, you saw the outcry at the All-Star game mm. when nobody played defense. Well, it wasn't all that much different than the regular season game that we've seen in the NBA. You know, I mean, score-wise and just effort-wise, are the players much more talented now offensively? Absolutely. But I also think the rule changes allow that to happen a little bit. I, you can't even get physical in the NBA at all. You can't breathe on someone. You can't touch someone. The floor is spread too wide. There's so much over-reliance on the three-point shot. There's got to be a way to bring it a little bit back toward the center where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the scores are a little bit down. And whenever you score 50 points, it's special. It's mm-hmm. not so special anymore. Is there a way to fix the All-Star game? Like, I saw the money aspect, and I'm like, I don't think that does anything. They don't need five, five million more reasons to to give more effort. I don't think that's the way to fix it. I think once you've lost it, the competitive edge is just gone, right? I, I don't think you can just force someone to care about it um, once you kind of have seen how it is. And like outside of letting it decide home court advantage in the NBA finals or something, which baseball tried to do uh, mm-hmm. a few years back and that did not go well. I just, I think that ship's kind of sailed. Do you? Yeah, I, I kind of do. I mean, it's, you know, you're asking pros to, you know, put forth, I don't know, uh, playoff effort. Mm-hmm. Nah, that's not going to happen. Guys are not going to play that hard. Um, and, and I don't really, I, I, I mean, throwing money at them. You're talking about the. If you make the all-star team, chances are you're making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So what's the extra million going to, I mean, not million, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What's that really going to mean? You're still not going to probably put your body on the line and things like that. And to be honest with you, I think there are the there are teams that don't want their player playing hard in the All Star game. Hmm. I mean, they want their player to to you know to leave that game the way they entered the game, and because the playoffs are so much more important. And I think that the All Star game changed, and this really feeds into load management as well. Once players started making enormous amounts of money because the teams had so much invested in them financially that any little 
sign of discomfort in their body and everything. That's why they've empowered the medical staffs and the training mm. staff to basically be more powerful than the coaching staff. You know, the coaches are the, the, the pe- people responsible for sitting players. Mm-hmm. And that's up to the performance staff. You know, uh, they're responsible for telling the coach, hey, so and so is not playing today. I mean, the coach says, hey, he's not playing today. Mm-hmm. So, um, and be- teams have empowered those divisions and elevated them to a point where they have all the muscle. Uh, so, getting back to the All Star game, uh, I don't necessarily feel that it's going to change all that much. Uh, I think, but you know, you have to also ask yourself, do fans really want players flying around the floor, injuring themselves? I don't know. I think the first time a player is seriously injured in the All-Star game, you will hear the counter argument. Mm-hmm. Well, he's been playing hard and, you know, he's playing for my team and, and all that. So I think you have to look at the All-Star game for what it is. It's just mm-hmm. an extra. You know, and I think if you keep it in that context and not look at it as, you know, it's this sort of, you know, uh, all the chips are on the table and they're playing for something. No, they're not playing for anything. It's just an exhibition. And if you keep it in that context and you you won't go away from that game disappointed. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the Knicks, they blew out the Celtics this week. They're clicking on all cylinders. Sean, I... I'm curious, are you surprised in the success and just the successful partnership to this point between Brunson and the Knicks and this youth movement and Julius Randle having a nice bounce back here? Are you surprised to see it just all click the way it is? I mean, this team still could end up with a five seed, maybe even a four seed uh, by season's end. Like, I don't know. Did you see this particular scenario playing out before the area when you were looking at just what the Knicks did this offseason and where they could realistically be i wasn't sure how jalen brunson would play once he had his own team mm. it's simply unproven i mean he was at luka Dantich and he was sort of like riding shotgun there and it was luka's team luka had the ball mostly brunson was just sort of like a you know uh a nice uh role player secondary player to have mm. and so i wasn't sure nobody was sure until he got his own team to run so, I mean, from that standpoint, it's been a pleasant surprise, I guess, uh, only because he was unproven in that situation. I think what's most important about the Knicks and Brunson and what you see now is that Brunson has the ball and and uh, Julius Randle doesn't. And last year, Julius Randle had the ball. And Julius mm-hmm. Randle is not a point guard. Uh, he makes mistakes. Uh, he takes the wrong shots sometimes. Um, he, he makes the wrong pass. Just the decision-making process was removed from him for the betterment of him because last year he was booed mm. by Nick fans. Now that he gets a point guard who suddenly has the ball, David, uh, Julius Randle is more of a finisher. And look what we've seen. All of a sudden there are chairs and he's back in the all-star game again. So I think it's helped Julius Randle. He doesn't have that burden of trying to create from the perimeter, which he was you know, for the most part, disasters at doing. Uh, and Jalen Brunson is a guy who's, look, you you can't teach someone to be a point guard. Mm. You, you, point guards are born. You know, just the way they able to see the floor, uh, see the play developing, knowing when to pass, who to pass it to, all those sort of things you really can't teach. I mean, it's just really within them. 
So here's a guy who has all, all those values and he has the ball and he's played well. The other thing is not only has he played well, but he's played well in clutch situations that clutch situations are defined as the last five minutes of a game of a tight game. And he leads the all NBA players in clutch three point shots. And I never knew, I never thought of him as a big time shooter. I didn't see mm-hmm. that, a lot of that at Villanova. And you saw a little bit with the Mavericks, but not tremendously. So he's played very well. He's been very steady. And then the other players have just sort of fallen in line. However, you know, having said all this about the Knicks, they're not up with the, the Bucks and the, uh, and the Celtics and the Sixers. They're not that good. So they're not even the Cavaliers. They're not title contending team. Mm. And I often wonder um, what Utah wanted from the Knicks for Donovan Mitchell. Hmm. Because if if you say they wanted R.J. Barrett, uh, maybe Grimes, and a couple first-round picks, I would have done that deal. I mean, R.J. Barrett is a good player. You know, Grimes is a nice little role player and picks whatever. Picks don't mean anything if, I, if I'm winning. I would have taken Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell's a star. Hmm. And they're hard to find. They're hard to find. Uh, R.J. Barrett's not going to be a star. He's a good hmm. player. He's not going to be a star. And it's, they're hard to find. If you had R.J. Barrett, uh, you had um, Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle, you know, you had Mitchell Robinson and throwing some other players uh, quickly, mm. quickly. Um, I don't know, man. I think that's a better team. I, I would have a little bit more of an upside for that team than I would this current team. This current team needs a knockdown. It, it, it still needs a shooter. And I think they could use a maybe a better low post presence offensively, at least in Mitchell Robinson. And I think they could use a wing defender. Uh, so Donovan Mitchell, I think, would have been very good with this team. He wanted to be in New York. He's from the New York area. That would have been a dynamic backcourt for the next several years. But for whatever reason, they didn't pull the trigger in the trade. I mean, you know, it hasn't been a disaster, but you're still wondering what could have been. Yeah. And Brunson, I think by all accounts, I mean, He's played like an all-star all year long. So early returns there are still positive if you're in the Knicks. Yeah. And you're not, you haven't mortgaged the future. Like Brunson, you just got out of free agency. So you were able to keep a lot of those young pieces that you would have had to give up um, in a Mitchell deal. And it, he's, like you said, a star. But mm-hmm. I am curious, and speaking of the Cavs, I'm I'm more of a believer in the Cavs uh, than the Sixers come playoff time. I think the Cavs just get overlooked a little bit. I think they're third in net ranking right now. Top 10 defense, top 10 offense. Like they're deep. Um, I think they deserve a lot more credit for just how good they are under JB Bickerstaff this year. But uh, the last thing on the Knicks, though, does it feel like, I mean, you saw Zion very buddy-buddy with a lot of those Knicks players. He's missed 60% of his games now uh, to this point in his NBA career. You see when he plays that it's such a tough conversation. Like, I don't know. I don't think there's a more unenviable position to be in in the nba than what david griffin is facing over the next year or so because you've seen the best right like when zion was playing this year the pelicans were a top 10 team in the league they were they looked like title contenders like they were a top three top four seed in the west and then anything can happen when zion's healthy he's walking into 27 10 and 10 with an unreal shooting percentage just un, you can't do anything with him inside the defense is an issue um seems like the weight's an issue but 
I don't know what you do. And then if you're the Knicks, is that who you're waiting on? We're just like, we're going to sit this one out for a little bit. We didn't mortgage all of our picks and everything else for our, uh, for Donovan, but we still think the Zion stuff is going to come to a head at a certain point. Cause like, how do you build a team if you're David Griffin in new Orleans, when you're just never going to be a hundred percent certain you're going to have this guy for the stretch run? Because if you're not, what are you doing? What is the point of all of this? I just, I feel bad for him because it's, it's a, it's a crappy situation to be in at the moment. Well, I mean, when Zion was healthy, uh, the Pelicans, I believe right around December 30th, they were tied for first in the West. Yeah. So again, if I'm David Griffin, I'm sitting pretty actually. I'm just sitting Hmm. back. I mean, the fans, the fans in New Orleans aren't overly demanding. They understand. Uh, obviously, I think they're frustrated with Zion's health or bad luck with, with that regard or whatever it might be. I mean, sometimes, you know, injuries are preventable and sometimes they're not, you know. Uh, I do think that um, the reason why I'm David Griffin and I'm sitting pretty is, number one, I have the Lakers' unprotected number one pick mm-hmm. uh, this summer. And we all know the stakes there. And we all see saw what happened at LeBron James, he's going to be out. Uh, Anthony Davis might even miss more games. You know how he is. He's going to miss games. Lakers may not make the playoffs. And while they're not going to be have the highest percentage of getting that number one pick, you never know. Mm. So, and I also own uh, future picks from uh, the Milwaukee Bucks from Drew Holiday. Uh, I think they have they owe one more. I think from him. Uh, so I mean, and you've got a lot of young players. So uh, you know, you know. A lot of it depends on Zion and his health. And yeah, suddenly, you know, after the last few years, that's a question. Mm. Um, You would like to think that the worst is over, but we don't know. He might be just one of those players. But I just think, you know, if you're the Pelicans, you just sit tight and and, and hope for the best. Um, Get through this year. Wait till he comes back, which might be in another couple weeks. You know, hopefully you can avoid the play-in situation, but that won't be easy. You might be back in the play-in situation like you were last year. But look how you played in the play-in situation last year when you uh, when you didn't have Zion. You know, you went toe-to-toe with the Phoenix Suns, and it was a very exciting series. Uh, I'm sorry, they won the play-in, and then they went toe-to-toe with the Phoenix Suns. So, mm. um, you know, I mean, as I said, there aren't that many great demands on them yet. But I, I just really want to wait to see Zion play in a fair amount of games and then see what happens with that team. Like I said, December 30th, approaching the new calendar year, they were mm-hmm. tied for first place in the West, and he was healthy. So what does that say? That's the thing. It's like you've seen the best of both, and I would just be so frustrated because I'm like, are we the best team in the West when totally healthy, or are we just never going to get that? I'm just going to be playing for the play-in year over year Mm -hmm. because we can't get 70 games out of Zion any given year. Mm -hmm. Um, Last thing, the Hawks. They hired Quinn Snyder this week, um, and he jumps right in. It's kind of a weird situation all across the board. You see this a lot more in hockey. Hockey seems to do this when they do a midseason firing. Um, a new coach does get uh, brought in and starts right away. I'm surprised it honestly doesn't happen more in sports, uh, professional sports across the league, because you get for Quinn Snyder, you get 20 games of just evaluating what you have going into the offseason. Like the Hawks aren't winning the NBA finals. They're not getting out of the East, but you get 20 games to build relationships to see what kind of lineups work, what kind of lineups don't. You have more insight into 
where things are headed and where guys stand and just I, I just feel like there's so many more pros to doing this model the other and I understand like it is kind of awkward with the staff because that's not uh, just it's not as guys who knows who will be on staff with Quinn next year and who won't and that sort of thing but by and large I think it's a it's a net positive but for you when you look at Quinn being brought in former assistant with that legendary staff under Mike Budenholzer uh, several years ago now but do you like the hire? Do you see this partnership working and him being able to salvage a big next year? Because DeJounte Murray is not locked up long-term and you gave up so much for DeJounte. You've got to make this work with him and Trey and you've got to make uh, just, uh, you got to turn Anyeka and Kongwu into a much bigger player um, to this point in his NBA career. You have to hope that DeAndre Hunter stays healthy. You got to keep uh, developing AJ Griffin, who I love um, as a player. But when you look at the hire and where the Hawks are going, are you optimistic or are you still kind of wait and see? Maybe just like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a gut feeling that Trey and DeJounte are ever going to work all that well together. Well, just talking about Quinn Snyder, I think uh, the Hawks needed him more than he needed them. Hmm. Uh, if you're Quinn Snyder, I mean, you could have just sat back, wait the summer, see which team won the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes, say it was the Houston Rockets. Maybe they have a coaching vacancy, and bam, you're coaching Victor Wembanyama. Mm. Um, you could have probably waited for maybe, quote-unquote, more attractive jobs. Uh, but so that's why I think the Hawks, I mean, they they jumped on They really didn't even interview anybody else uh, mm. because he's a proven coach. Uh, he's coached superstars before in Utah. He's been around stars as an assistant coach, uh, you know, come up, came up through the Popovich system in San Antonio, uh, obviously a former assistant coach with the Hawks when they uh, had Al Horford, and Joe Johnson, and, you know, Josh Smith. So anyway, so he knows the turf. Um, and so I thought that it was the best coach that they could find right now and probably would have been, even if they had waited till summer, he would have been their best choice as well. So why mm-hmm. not get him? Uh, and it does give him time to assess the situation. Obviously, it comes down to two players. Ajante Murray, who you said can walk, although I'm not as worried about that because the Hawks can pay him more than anybody else. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that basically begins and ends right there. Unless Ajante Murray does not like playing next to Trey Young, and he's never indicated anything like that. I think, like, most players, he's going to go where the money is, you know, mm-hmm. can always take the money in a couple of years, the man to trade. So <laughs> true. You take the money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the first rule of thumb, take the money. Um, and then with Trey young, uh, I, I think that, you know, look, he's going to mature as a player. You would like to think he's going to mature as a per as, as a person. He knows that there's a bullseye on his back with regards to having so many coaches now and, I don't know to what degree he factored into those coaches' departures, the last two coaches, but probably a certain amount. And I think that, um, you know, Quinn Snyder will be the beneficiary of that, of a a more mature uh, Shrey Young. But again, it's one of those situations where we'll have to wait and see. Uh, The Hawks uh, sacrifice a bit of their future in getting DeJounte Murray. And if he w- walks, which I don't think he will do, then they have nothing to show for. Um, the other things with the Hawks is they have to decide whether or not they want to be a luxury tax team. I don't. If I'm an owner of a franchise, I don't mind being a luxury tax team if I'm one of the top three or four teams in, in the NBA. 
I do mind being a luxury tax team if I'm struggling to make the playoffs. And right now the Hawks are struggling to make the playoffs. Well, that was the thing is like they didn't they traded Kevin Herter to get under that. Like that was one of those weird off seasons where and this was like I'm a Hawks guy. So it that troubled me of, okay, if you really want to do this and you really are serious about competing with the Celtics and the Bucks and you look at the Bucks luxury tax bill, you're like, look, there's a path. And if you want to get back to the Eastern Conference finals, Kevin Mm -hmm. Herter cannot just be moved for Justin Holiday, who was just not not good at all could not shoot and was uh out of the lineup 12 games in um great locker room guy and loved the holidays but just it was not gonna work he should not have been playing mm-hmm. and mo harkless who was immediately waived and you're like kevin herter is just playing fantastic basketball in sacramento he and trey had um a good connection and you just you moved on for nothing and you didn't replace him and he's just gone and you also have this win now move of giving up more depth and trading uh multiple picks to bring in DeJounte Murray. So it's like, why would you trade for DeJounte and not keep Kevin Herter? Why would you not just keep this nucleus together? Why really going all out and seeing what a big tax bill team looks like? Because I mean, we've seen this team made an Eastern conference final uh, run with a worse roster and worse collection of guys, top end guys than what they had coming into this year. Like I came into this year where it's like, I thought it was fair to expect a top four seed still with everybody being healthy, that this is enough talent in the East. They should compete to where about the Cavs are right now. Like that I think would have been fair to expect to be right at, uh, where the Cavs are with Trey, Deandre, um, DJ, John Collins and Capella. And they just haven't been anywhere near it. And they've been a league average ball club all year long. But they also just have never had their eight guys healthy over the last two years. I think that's something that people mm-hmm. miss. As someone who watches every one of these games, they don't have their dudes. John Collins, his fingers never been right since that injury. His shot's been like 27% all year. Capella's been in and out of the lineup. Um, and Yekka's missed some time. DeAndre always misses some time. Bogey missed some time. It's just they've never had that group. But when you look at the lineups with that group, they're really, really good. When they are all healthy, they're good. So I still think there's reason for optimism. And I think Quinn in Utah showcased he completely understands modern pick and roll basketball. And that Gobert, Donovan Mitchell pick and roll is something that he could flourish with, with Capella and Yeka and Trey and DJ. Like I think that at the very least is going to be a big uptick and just what they're able to do on that front and have more of a strong identity because a lot of it was just here's DJ's turn. Here's Trey's turn. Here's DJ's turn. And I just, I don't think we'll see as much of that. So I think that's enough room for optimism and just fingers crossed on health. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've read the situation, right? Um, Again, um, uh, I think the Hawks will be right there in the playoff, uh, at least a play in situation. The East is top heavy, but Mm -hmm. in the middle, it's just whatever. Uh, so, uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what kind of Quinn on this team last 20 games. They need the, and I, I tell folks, I'm like, I, I was on a podcast yesterday and I was like, the thing that you want, if you're a Hawks fan is you want Sixers Hawks in round one, the Sixers yeah. want no part of a six seed Hawks who are healthy in round one. I would take the Hawks in that series. Like just the mind games and you give Trey Philadelphia in round mm-hmm. one. I mean, the NBA would want that. That is just an all-time because, like, they're getting stomped by the Bucks or the the Celtics if they get them in round one. So if you can get up to mm-hmm. six, then we're we're really cooking with something, Sean. Then we're like, okay, I'm all the way back in. I'm just I'm a modern Skyhawk around my uh, around my house here in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, well, Sean, uh, what can the good folks check out from you over at NBA.com or anywhere else this week? 
just taking on the Warriors and whether or not uh, their glass is half empty or half full. Uh, also, next uh, Tuesday, uh, Paul Gasol will have his jersey retired by the Lakers. Hmm. And uh, I had a chance to speak with him during the All-Star break. So uh, I'm looking forward to writing that those uh, couple stories coming up in the next couple days. Do you think he gets it retired by Memphis too or no? Hmm. That's a little tough. I think when I'm thinking Memphis Grizzlies, I'm thinking the grit and grind era. There will be a Gasol up in the rafters, but it won't be Powell. We'll leave it there. I love that. It will be Mark Gasol. What is he even doing now? He fell off a cliff. Like, what is Mark Gasol? He's just living his best life. Oh, he's life. playing overseas in Spain. Oh, is he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I like it. Sean Powell, always great checking in and talking hoops with you. I appreciate it. Have yourself a great rest of your day, a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, my man, Chase. We'll see you, man. See ya. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.